0: We'll stand and read 1 Timothy 6, or we're just gonna do verses one and two. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we know in Genesis House, whether we're doing one verse or a hundred verses at a time, you have a lot to say. You want to speak to us as Christian employees and Christian bosses this morning. I would ask you that your spirit would guide us into truth, and that you would um, be the source of encouragement, the source of conviction, the source of um, understanding as we try to work through these scriptures together. And all of us have had great work situations, and and some of us love our jobs. Other people have struggled and find work tedious and often frustrating. Wherever we're at today, Lord, in our work process, I pray that you have something to say to us. And we we take your word to heart, and we live it out in our lives. So we look forward to our time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well as you notice by our reading this morning we see Paul with yet another corrective to the Ephesian church uh, written to Timothy. Now over the last month we've seen him address uh, people like widows and make corrections there. We've seen him address elders, make corrections there. And now he wants to correct the relationship between slaves and masters, something that was clearly going on in that church at that time. But you really notice that in the first two verses here that he addresses two groups of individuals, two, two types of slaves, if you will. There were those who worked under the authority of Christian masters, verse 2, but there was also those who worked under the authority of non-Christian masters, which is verse 1. So two distinct categories of people. And just like it was in the case of elder, elders and widows, Paul's chief concern here is that they be honoured, that, that Christian and non-Christian masters be honoured. We really see that in um, verse one. All those who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's the key principle there. So we'll be discussing what this honor looks like in a moment, but before we get into this, I I want to uh, really address one really key issue right off the cuff. Some of us in here, when you hear the word slave and master, your head automatically goes to one picture. A picture that we're very familiar with in North America it gets taught in schools uh, we see it in the Hollywood movies and we think of the transatlantic slave trade and we know that we know what that looks like right we we think of the you know when uh, during the 16th to the 19th centuries that that stretch of three four hundred years where European merchants would go over to the continent of Africa and kidnap men and women and children and dragging them against their will and boats across the ocean, back to North America and to Europe, and they would then be sold for profit to wealthy landowners and so on, and put under extremely harsh work conditions and treated unfairly, or inhumanely in many times. Some of them lost their lives, they were devoid of all rights. That's the picture we have of modern day understanding of slavery and master-slave relationships. Now while it's true that Paul did say in verse 1, that there were those who were under the yoke as slaves, that's not the picture of slavery that God or the New Testament portrays. I'm making that very clear up front. That's not what Paul has in mind when he speaks of slaves obeying your masters. In our language, the best way to understand the slave-master relationship is that of employer-employee. Think employer-employee, not uh, inhumane treatment. And it's important we understand the difference, because many within the church who are without understanding, and those without the church, will often make attacks against the Bible and against God, because they think God and the New Testament writers such as Paul are in favor of such treatment of people. And that's the slavery that is supported because they see the word slave and master in the Old Testament and New Testament. So I think it's really important right now to unveil what the Bible actually did say about slavery um, in that form, but what, what did God say about the transatlantic slave trade type slavery that we have? I want to speak about that first before we get into what the New Testament understands uh, about what God really was after and what Paul's really talking about. The first place I want to start with is Exodus. You remember the scene. Um, Israel is in captivity. There's a lot of people estimate over two million people. And they were put into slavery by the, the, the Egyptian pharaoh. And there's, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says that they were ma- their work was made bitter to them. And their lives were bitter because of the, the treatment. And it was severe treatment. And they lost all their privileges and rights. And listen to God's heart about the situation of that slavery that was mimicking mimipi- the uh, Atlantic slave trade. Listen to God's heart in Exodus 3. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He calls it affliction. Not a good thing. <laughs> and I've given here to their cry because of their taskmasters, from aware of their sufferings. Again, not a good thing. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of Egyptians. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I've seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And you know what? God's heart was so embittered against what was happening in this inhumane treatment. He gave ten plagues as a, as a sign of judgment to let his people go and free him, and they wouldn 't uh, um, and then finally the the, uh, the Red Sea, where the Egyptians came and they tried to even conquer them there so that 's the heart of God in inhumane treatment of people and this type fa- the slavery that we 've been sort of got pictured in our minds, which is not the biblical understanding and um, yeah god 's judgment of people who treat people like that. But the second place of importance, really, is the, the Mosaic Law. You see, we can't deny that slaves were acquired in Israel during their time. And there's reasons for the requirement. And if you want to know about those, I can give them to you after the, the service and dialogue. I can tell you how people became slaves. But listen to the rights and the protection of slaves in God's economy in the New, in the Old Testament. Look at these principles. Number one. You was a maximum time of service for men, Jewish men. Uh, Jewish men could serve six years. On the seventh, they could be released. For Gentiles, it was 50. But the point is, there was a maximum time of service. That's not the Atlantic slave trade. <laughs> Number two, they protected the slave's future welfare. When the slave was released, they were not to go empty-handed. The master was to set them up with provisions for the future so he could start a new life, like flocks and so on. This was not a slavery of oppression; this was a slavery of opportunity. Third, he protected the family unit. If a man was single and he came into slavery, his master was to free him. Or sorry was to, was able to give him a wife if he wanted to, and he was allowed to have the children and have children. If he was married, his, his wife was off limits to the master that took him in again. this is totally, off, totally different than the Atlantic slave trade we 're accustomed to thinking about. Fourth, he protected the rights of a female slave. There was a number of things that he did to do that, God did. You can check them out in Exodus 21. But the one key was this. They were to be treated as if they were his own daughter. Done. Fifth, the biblical slavery held masters accountable for how they treated their slaves in a physical sense. They couldn't abuse them. If you cause permanent damage to a slave by striking them with the loss of a tooth or loss of an eye, they were to be set free for life. You hurt them and damaged them, set free for life. That's again, far fast far, far cry from what was been put in our heads through Hollywood and so on. In case of death, the master was to go to court and face punishment. And finally, biblical slavery condemned the practice of kidnapping people to make a profit. In Exodus 21 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall be surely put to death. Surely put to death, kidnapping. John Davies in his commentary about, in Exodus writes this, there was, to be so, there was to be no such thing as a permanent involuntary servitude for a Hebrew slaves towards their Hebrew master. In fact, the Hebrew slave could sustain a rather unique relationship to his master. What's cool, church, is that there's examples, not only within the Jewish faith, but in the Greco-Roman faith of good relationships between slave and masters. Do you remember the story, the true account, of uh, the Roman centurion in Jesus in Luke 7? It's so good, we have to read it. A centurion slave, he's Roman, he's not Hebrew, that's important, Greco-Roman culture, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on His way with them, and when He was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble Yourself further, for I am not worthy for You to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to You, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, He marveled at him and said, Turned to the crowd that was following and said i say to you not even in israel have i found such great faith when those who had been sent returned to the house they found the slave in good health this is another picture of a tyrant master with a whip beating his greco-roman slave looking to break his will give him no rights this is a man highly concerned about the welfare of his servant He's willing to take the time to seek out Jesus even because he could be believed that he will alleviate his suffering. Once again, really important to understand, this is not the typical understanding of slavery that we have become to, come to believe. And we, can, we demonstrate through the Old and New Testament, both in Hebrew and Greco-Roman culture, there could be relationships that were really healthy and really great to be in. However... To say that it was all rainbows and butterflies uh, in the Greco-Roman world would not be fair as well. There were times that relationships were hard in the workplace and you would have unfair treatment of slaves. Where do we get this from? 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are Unreasonable. There's unreasonable masters in the workforce back in, the, in Rome, in the Roman world. And that's true of us today as well. He doesn't define what the unreasonable, unreasonable, but what this is. But he does say this, for this finds favor, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. So whatever the treatment was at work, it was unjust and there was uh, there was suffering involved. So we have to understand that not all relationships in the Greco roman world were good either but again I just want to get that main picture out of your head of what Paul is talking about and it's best understood as employee employer relationships but regardless of whether it was good or bad the key principle that he wanted um, the the, uh, employee to follow was that they were to honor they were to honor now we've seen this theme with the widows Honor in that case was primarily in the financial care honor them in terms of finances provide for them in case of the elders it was a double honor respect and reverence and uh, and also financial for those who worked hard at preaching and teaching the Word of God and ruled well the context of slaves then has to be more in the category of respect and reverence it has to be You think of any place in the world today, or even back then, where slaves would have to financially compensate their masters. So the context of honor is best defined by the text. And so it can't be in the area of finances. It'll be the other way around. Masters would financially compensate their slaves. So reverence and respect is what's what's in Paul's mind here. And that's clear also in verse 2. Notice he says there, that um, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespect, disrespectful to them because they are brethren. Respect is a key central theme in honoring to Paul. So Paul says, respect, revere, be, you know, honor your elder, or elder, your master, your, your boss. The problem is he doesn't expand how. So we're going to use other texts in the New Testament To discover how this was to look The word uh, The word for um, slave is actually the word doulos in Greek which means a bond servant So when you look up that word in the New Testament you can find places where that word is used And then you can see the context in which that word is used and figure out what kind of behaviors Paul is talking about And there's a great one here back to Luke 7 in the story we just read about the centurion. This is the definition of a doulos in its simplest term. You are to obey. obey. Obedience is really the way you honor and respect. The word slave is doulos. Same word as in 1 Timothy 6, one. The centurion says, For I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Definition of a slave, you do it. Your boss tells you to do it, you do it. If I don't want to do it, you do it. I don't like you, you do it. You do it. Nike, just do it. There. That's not in my notes, by the way, obviously. <laughs> but just do it. That's the, that's the model of a Do You want to honor your boss, you respect your boss, you just do it. So this is further to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. There's the respect again, there's the obedience. With sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Obedience is at the center of honoring and respecting your boss. The exception, of course, is when the boss asks you to break the Lord's commands. That's when you draw the line. But everything else is on the table. Now, what's cool is I found two specific categories in the New Testament that really strike a chord with Paul in terms of obedience. The same word doulos occurs again in Titus 2.9 and 10. And look at the context of what he says there. Urge bond slaves, douloses, to be subject to one, to their own mass and everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. But showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Not to be argumentative is part of honoring and obeying your boss. And not stealing, pilfering, robbing. So let's talk about these two things. Since Paul thinks they're an issue in, in, in Crete where Titus is stationed. How would this play out, not being argumentative? Well, how many of you, you, you in here have really, really good ideas, and are quite intelligent, and have worked for people where you think that you could do things better than the person that's employed you? <laughs> if only they would think like me. If only they would just do this, life would be so much better. And not only that, people at work agree with me. How do you go about getting that point across? There's a difference between going up to your boss and say, "Hey, listen, uh, can I make a suggestion? Can I talk to you about something? Can I just make a suggestion?" This is a situation at work. I, I know you're an authority here, but if you would you ever consider that kind of conversation versus, "Hey, you know, Larry, whatever, you know, come over here. You need to do this." You're the boss. Those aren't those aren't strong starting words. He doesn't need to do anything. The difference between suggesting and telling. Are if you if you come across argumentative, you're not going to be under their authority. You'll probably not even last long at the workplace. And Proverbs 13:10 says this: Pride only leads to arguments, but those who take advice are wise. My favorite. Proverbs 18.1. And for those of you who have children, use this in your home. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in hearing their own opinions. (laughs) You can be opinionated all you want. The Bible says if you do that in the workplace, you're a fool. You're a fool. Argumentation was clearly an issue in the New Testament. People thought they knew better than their bosses and were making a point of contention in the workplace. How about pilfering and robbing and stealing? That same word is used in Acts chapter 5, verse 2, word pilfer. It's when that when An- remember Ananias, he lied about how much money he sold his property for when he brought it to Peter. And when he was confronted, Peter said this: Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? To keep back, that word back is actually pilfer. Okay? So he lied about how much money he sold his property for. So that he could keep some of the money for himself and presented it to the church. So he was living a hypocritical life. He wanted to keep up appearances. Now there are different ways that you can rob and steal from your employer. You can just take physical goods. You can take merchandise. So if you work in a, uh, in a chain, you can take food. You can take clothing. Whatever. I remember this was this was a really interesting. So you talk about uh, learning your own lesson. When I worked, this is me confessing, not bragging. When I worked at Club Fit, I, was, uh, I worked there as a gym guy. And uh, it was my first job in Calgary back in 1999-2000. Ni- and I was training for competitions. and I didn't have a lot of money and the job in my mind was paying very, very poorly for what I was doing. And uh, there was a juice bar. And I would work behind the desk once in a while and sell supplements. And they would do chicken and rice and wraps. And so what I would do, because I felt entitled, was I would make chicken and wraps and rice, and I would eat for the eight hours during my shifts, but I was smart. There was cameras there. So instead of paying the $6.95, what it was worth, whatever it was, I'd put three bucks in the till. And I would get tips for my services. So I'd use my tips from the jar, pay for the food, never put a dime out of my pocket, but always give the owner anywhere between half to like 30% or whatever of the regular price of the food. Fast forward eight years. I own my own gym. I serve chicken and rice in the juice bar. One day, the guy that supplies me comes and says, "Uh, Andrew, do you realize how much chicken you sold this month? He must be making a killing. I said, no, how much? He goes, you went through, like, I forget, I'm making this up, like six boxes of chicken this month. I'm like, six boxes? I went and looked at the profit margins. I had about a hundred bucks in the till from that month in sales. Guess he was eating it all my staff. You know what? I wanted to get angry. But I thought, you know what? I did the same thing. Non-Christian mind. Didn't care. and I, get, I know why they did it to me. They probably thought the same thing I thought about them. They're not, he's not paying me enough for the services and the hard work I do here and that was the end of it. Now I put some measures in place to prevent that from going forward and eventually got rid of the juice bar altogether. But the point is, That's the way you can steal. (laughs) But there's more ways you can steal, church. Because you might think, well, I don't steal like that. Let me ask you something. Do you ever take sick days when you're not sick? Do you take longer coffee breaks than scheduled on the docket? Be constantly late, but fudge the hours on the timesheet when you go in for work? Especially if you work places like Sobeys and grocery stores. Are you often distracted unproductive, but you still get paid for the full hours of time you do? <laughs> You're pilfering. You're robbing and stealing. Because if the master or the boss found out, they'd want their money back. Or they'd go find someone else to employ instead of you and me. Stealing comes in not just hard-cut goods. It's become, it can come in your work ethic and the way you think about things. Now, I imagine in certain work situations, things can be tough. You're not always happy with the boss, and you can often disagree with them. And you think, well, I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like obeying and not stealing and not being argumentative, because they don't deserve it. I don't feel like it." Well, this is where the word doulos is very helpful again. Because you know who Jesus Christ uh, defines himself as in the scriptures? A doulos. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond-servant, and being made in the likeness of men. You know, When Christ went to the cross, nothing in his feelings, in his psyche, wanted to do so. His emotions were saying, don't go, don't go, don't do it, be disobedient. How do we know? In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke 22, he says, If there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. For him to go to the cross was an exercise of the will. He had to overcome the flesh that he had and say, I will do what you want, Lord, even though everything in my body and my mind is saying, don't do this. If it's any option other than the cross, I'll do it. But not this. This was a voluntary submission, a willful placement under the authority of the Father. And look at what good came out of that. Look at the good. You and I can be reconciled to God because of His willful submission as a servant of the Father. If He didn't, we'd be all in a boatload of trouble on the judgment day. But notice the good that comes from six one. If a Christian employee obeys a non-earthly master, Look at this. All who are under the of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the doctrine will not be spoken against. The way one honored and respected their boss could be used as an evangelistic tool. If you had a great work ethic that respected your boss, you could win them to the Lord through your behavior. If you didn't, you could bring God's name and drag it into the mud and the gospel and the cause of Christ and Paul didn't want any behavior in an employee that would soil the gospel and hurt the cause of Christ. Well, how would this happen? Well, let's think about it. If you're a Christian with a non-Christian boss, what's the potential for you to have in your mind a superiority complex? You could potentially think you're superior. Why? Well, you compare your moral compass with theirs. You hear about their weekend, and you think about your weekend, and how holy yours was, and how immoral theirs was. You think, oh man, like, in God's eyes, I'm the, I'm the stuff compared to Him. Or, you watch the way they work, the way they, they, they handle conflict with their employees, and they're gruff, and, and get angry, and sharp, and short. And you're always gentle and patient and kind and so you think well, I mean if anyone deserves (coughs) honor here, it's me. You can be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who stands by himself and prays, thank God I'm not like other men. And you put your boss in that position. And because you're a child of God, because you know you're a child of God because God declares it in the scriptures, you know your citizenship is in heaven. So the only king you need to obey is the Lord. Your theme song is like the one from Hillsong United. You know that song, Who You Say I Am? Your attitude would be something like this, and I forgive those of you who can sing in the church. I'm gonna sing for you now. This is the attitude of the of the non the Christian towards a non-Christian boss. You know who the son sets free? Always free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. So I'll never have to ever listen to you since I'm better than you. Yes, I am. (laughs) That's how we think as Christians. Yeah, thanks, Laura. That's why I don't sing in public. But what does Paul say about this? The way you honor your boss as an employee can be used as an evangelistic tool to win people to Christ. You can soil the gospel, do good for, and do bad for God's name, or you can do uh, good for the gospel and bring his name on high. My favorite commentator in my Timothy series is Mounts, William Mounts. He says, slaves were to respect their masters because the success of the gospel was more significant than the lot of any individual. Therefore, they were to behave in a way that did not bring reproach on it. That's radical in our culture, church, you know why? Our culture is this, it's about my rights. It's about me and my rights, especially in the workplace. It's me and my rights. Paul says, it's not about you and your rights, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and the cause of the gospel. (laughs) You obey your masters. Done. You know, this got my head spinning. I want to picture you something here with what Paul's saying imagine next week or um i stand up on sunday and I announce we're doing an evangelistic course in genesis house anybody who wants to learn how to witness for god and preach the gospel we are going to do an evangelistic course meet here at nine o'clock every uh, sunday we're going to go from nine to ten it's going to last eight weeks long and we're going to do some material on how to show your faith when you come here what are you expecting to get from me probably something from Rabbi Zacharias Ministries, right? What if I opened up the Bible and said, here's the course we're going to do this week. We're going to talk about how you work. What? I'm here for evangelism. I know. I want you to all describe what you're like as an employee at work. I know. I'm here for evangelism. I know. I know. Can I read 6, 1 Timothy 6 uh, verse 1 to you? Can you imagine the radicalness of that? That's exactly what Paul's saying. <laughs> you know what's really cool? I know a woman, uh, and many of you know her as well from Pine Ridge in Calgary. Who was used by the Lord to win someone to Jesus Christ by her work ethic. You know Stephanie Canuel, Caleb's wife from uh, Pine Ridge in Calgary. Caleb's preached here before back when the church plant first started. I phoned her last night because I knew of this story but I didn't have the details and I'm glad I called her. This is her story. She's been working for seven years at a particular medical clinic in, near Calgary, seven years. She has a direct supervisor that just recently gave her life to the Lord in February and was baptized just recently as well. This woman that, sh- that became baptized and gave herself to Christ in February was her supervisor during this entire seven years. Stephanie said that it was difficult at many times working for her because she was often like uh, hard to love, uh, very gruff, uh, just rough around the edges, just socially kind of rub people the wrong way. And she said that many times Stephanie would go home, and Caleb knew right away when she had a bad day at work. He'd say something happened at work, and she'd say, "Yeah, it was written all over her face." And this woman often was the cause of her frustration. However, during the seven years. Uh, Stephanie was able to um, have many spiritual conversations with her and um, saw how she interacted with clients. And when it came to things like reviews, like the supervisor would write reviews of the employees, apparently, this woman never wrote a bad word in any of the reviews about Stephanie. She also watched Stephanie go through her situation with Caleb, who's got Lyme's disease, and he's not been able to work and he's very sick, and she watched how she handled that stress during the work hours and how she pers- persevered with the Lord while she watched her husband in suffering. So her ability to handle stress, her bil- her attitude at work, the way she interacted with clients, the, the lack of poor reviews, her wi- will- willingness to share faith, all these things were major influences in her life. And when she gave her testimony in the baptism tank, just uh, just recently, Stephanie was there, And she said she personally named her and said she came to know the Lord because of her influence in the workplace for seven years. Amen. Stephanie says, you know what? I have to thank God first because she changed my character to be able to stand her character in that work situation. Because if I wasn't a Christian, that would never have happened because I would have taken my frustration and anger out on her. So she persevered. Unjustly in certain situations, kept her mouth shut, kept working hard, put her nose to the grind, and she won this woman. God used her to win this woman to the Lord, a seven-year process. It's exactly what First Timothy six to talk in the Low Church. Okay, what about the situation when a Christian employee has a Christian boss? What was the mandate for honoring them? Well verse two. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. How would it occur in a situation at work where a Christian employee would fail to respect a Christian boss? How would that play out? Well, you wouldn't have a superiority complex like you would in the first situation. You would have a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. Because of the shared relationship in Jesus. Here's here's how. You and your boss go to church every Sunday. Sit together. Laugh outside together. The kids play together. You have lunch together. You go camping together. And so on. You are in the same Bible studies, whatever. But you have this close connection in the church. You know that both of you, according to Scripture, are co heirs in Christ. You're co heirs in Christ. You're equal in terms of the offer of forgiveness. And so um, you're equally loved. There's neither slave nor free. You know, we're all equal in Christ. That type of attitude. Uh, during the church service, you lift up holy hands together in obedience to uh, T- Timothy's instruction in the first chapter, or just Timothy, early chapters, right? Chapter 2. So as far as you're concerned, the lines of authority are erased because of, the, because of your co-heir relationship in Christ. So since they're erased in church, you go to the workplace and you think there must be erased here too. Because it's like that in the church, so it's got to be erased in the workplace. And it's not, Paul says, it's not. Redemption never cancels out the social structure. Take it one step further. Not only do you believe that the lines are erased, what if you're an elder in the church who is the employee and your master is a layperson? (laughs) So you're the elder, you have all the spiritual gifts, the gifts of teaching, gifts of evangelism, right? Your master doesn't have that. So you're the elder, you get up before church and you read the sermon, and he sits and listens to you and sits under your authority. One day he does something goofy in the church and you have to discipline him as the employee. So you're in the position of superiority in the church. So you go home, you go to work, and you think, what? Well, I'm in God's, in God's house, I'm the, I'm the bomb, so I must be the bomb at work as well. Paul says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. It goes back and flip-flops, he's now your authority once again. You can see how this is, can be so easy to do, and why the early church is going through all these issues. What does Paul say to do to remedy this entitlement? He says this He served them all the more. Served them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and are beloved. Paul says, you might be free in Christ. You might even be the authority in the church. But that freedom and authority does not give you a sense of entitlement. shouldn't give you that. That freedom is only to be used as an opportunity to serve all the more faithfully. For two reasons. One, they are fellow believers. Two, because that's how you love them accordingly. That's how you show and demonstrate love towards them, as a fellow heir. You know, in 1 John 3.16, he says this. This is how we know what what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Paul says that's what you do at work too. You lay your life down at work too. For a fellow believing boss. Some of you might think, well, I'm glad this sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm the boss. And I'm self-employed. <laughs> well, I just have one PowerPoint slide for those of you who are self-employed and are the boss. Ephesians 6.6 6. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. With respect. <laughs> Do not threaten them, since you don't... That he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Colossians 4:1. Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know what you that you also have a master in heaven. Listen, you as the boss and self-employed, you have a king that you're serving in glory. Your work ethic and the way you treat people in this lifetime has to be on par, just like it is for the employee, because your ultimate boss is the Lord. And he's watching. And he's watching everything going on. And you're a witness too, the way you work in self-employment and as a, as a boss can be a tool of evangelism. So Paul says this in verse 2. Teach and preach these principles. Well, as the Lord's doulos, I have done them. But I want to say one thing to the kids before I go. So, I know some of this might be, you guys are pretty young. But I'm talking to Leo and Emmet and Briella, Gigi, Sammy, Levi, Olivia, Jason, Jacob and all those kids online. Obedience is the way you honor your bosses according to this scripture. That's how you show respect. You know, there's only one specific command given to kids in the whole Bible. The one specific command says this children, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Let's take the principles we learned today. Adulas, according to Romans, or the centurion, Adulas works this way, do this, and he does it. So when mom and dad say, do this, to honor the Lord, you do that. <laughs> Remember Titus said, not to be argumentative. Don't, be, don't cause a fight with your mom and dad when they ask you to do something. They also said not to steal, not to steal from your parents. Again, really important things for us to learn as kids. The way we honor the Lord is we listen to mom and dad. You know why it matters as well? Because one day you're going to end up working. And one day you're going to have to listen to someone else in authority. If you've practiced and honored God with your lives in the home, you will make tremendous employees and great employees when you have a job one day. Because you'll learn the principles that God wants you to do in the house. And they will transfer to work. And trust me. Like, as someone in my 40s, I've watched, I know the attitude towards young teenagers in our society, in the workplace. It's not good. (laughs) It's not good because mom and dad haven't done a good job of training their kids to have a strong work ethic and to honor their bosses. But it starts in the home. It starts in the home. Lesson number one. To honor one's boss is to respect them as evidenced by one's obedience in both speech and action. Luke 7, do it, and he does it. Ephesians, obey. Colossians, obey. Titus gives us two categories of interest not stealing, not arguing. It's the way you speak and the way you behave. The exception, of course, is when you're asked to sin against God, you obey him. But that's rare. <laughs> that's true even in unreasonable situations. First Peter 2.18 If your boss is unreasonable and you're suffering unjustly, you still walk in submission to him or her. Okay? Lesson number two. Honoring one's boss will often require a voluntary surrender of the will. You're not always going to feel like it. That's why the definition of slave in Greek is so important. Jesus was a doulos in Philippians 2.7 who voluntary of his own will submitted to the Father he emptied himself according to Philippians 2 didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped he said it's not my will but your will be done so when I'm suffering at work it's not my will God it's your will be done and the gospel is at stake by the way I respond my individual rights are gone for the rights that you have in my life Lesson three, Christian employees are to honor their secular bosses so that the name of God and the reputation of the gospel are not tainted in any way. Again, Stephanie's story is bang on for that testimony. The way we behave has spiritual significance and the way we work is an evangelistic tool. And I'm going to give you one illustration. Uh, Which do you believe when I say this? Tell me what you believe by my words and my actions. I love you. What do you believe? I love you. You believe my words or my actions? You believe my actions. This means, like, I love you means nothing when I'm doing this. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but I'm disobedient to you. It means nothing. (laughs) It means nothing. It's words. It's religion. Finally, Christian employees are to serve their Christian bosses all the more faithfully due to their shared relationship in Jesus Christ and as an act of love. No sense of entitlement. He's a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. You serve them, and it's the way you lay down your life for your brother and sister. Hope the message spoke clearly to you, and I'm curious about our time and conversation this morning.